The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. encourage you to please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4 for our text this morning. My aim is to cover the whole chapter as it pertains to Jesus's mission and how we should understand it and apply it to our own sense of mission and calling, but I'm only going to read the last dozen or so verses. This follows chapter 3, which includes the baptism of Christ, his genealogy, and, and, and begins with his calling by the Spirit into the wilderness where he undergoes the temptation of the devil. After leaving the wilderness, Jesus begins his itinerant preaching and teaching ministry, teaching in the synagogues, and Luke draws focus upon the reception that Jesus receives in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth, where Jesus introduces, formally introduces himself his mission, and applies the vision of Isaiah 61 to himself. Well, this gathering of worship in the synagogue does not end well, as the townspeople gather to cast Jesus off of a cliff. Not a great way to start your itinerant preaching ministry. But the narrative moves on to focus on various healing miracles and wraps up with a summary at the end where Jesus clarifies his purpose, why he has been sent. I read Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick and with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, 
I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is God's holy and inspired word. Father, we thank you for sending your son on a great rescue mission. And we thank you that that mission continues on today in the life of your people and the churches that you have called to serve as your witness. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you might agree with me that we live in a very goal-oriented society. We love efficiency. I, for one, love to get things done, to check things off my list. There are scores of books written by gurus helping you to maximize your effectiveness, to improve time management. But you can throw out all the gurus and all the masters aside when you consider the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the most effective, impactful man in the history of the world. To the best of our knowledge, Jesus had a three-year itinerant ministry of traveling in a region, a small region of northern Palestine in the areas of Galilee, coming down to the annual feast of Jerusalem on occasion. And scholars speculate that Jesus probably only came into physical contact uh, with a very small number of people, probably in the tens of thousands. Many of our radio broadcasts today can reach even more. Certainly more people than that have attended Billy Graham Crusades in a given week. Jesus had no cell phone. He had no Uber app to give him transportation. He could not use Airbnb to plan his stops along the way. He had no social media to promote rallies for himself. And yet Jesus launched a global movement that now scholars and statisticians tell us there are 1.3 billion faithful followers of Christ. That is, those people who regularly attend worship and service for Christ. That makes up about 44% of all religious people who actively engage in worship. Jesus Christ made the greatest impact in world history, I believe, because he stayed on mission. He had a clear calling, a purposeful mission. And we find in this text, Jesus had intimate connection with the Father and was led in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced that all of us have a deep longing to make impact, to make our lives count for something, to be part of something great. And so it's our aim this morning to better understand Jesus' mission, that we too may join him and make impact in our world, and that we also might stay on mission until he returns. Our text tells us that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit, went into the wilderness where he endured 40 days of fasting, trial, and temptation by the devil. 
We might call this his final mission training before his regular preaching and teaching ministry began. This was not a fleshly endeavor. It was spiritual. He did not come on his own. He was sent by the Father. And so Jesus' mission began with a calling from God, and that was tested by the devil. The devil would approach Jesus at his weakest point when he was hungry. I understand that military elite forces like the special ops subject their trainees to severe deprivation of food and water and sleep and fatigue to prepare them for the worst that they might experience on a mission or things that they might suffer behind enemy lines captured by their enemies. And so the devil comes to Jesus when he is deprived merely suggesting that he satisfy his hunger. And when this first attempt failed, the devil appealed to Jesus' desire for autonomy and glory, casting this grand vision that all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. If you would just simply bow down and worship me. Jesus will not be fooled to trade away his inheritance for a mere loaf of bread and the empty promises of the evil one. So the devil makes a third attempt to perhaps insert a measure of doubt in the mind of Christ, questioning God's goodness to him, appealing to his own fleshly self-interest and protection. Jesus passes the test. Indeed, he submits to his father's test that come in the form of the devil's temptations. And Jesus will not put his father to the test. Temptations are foils to the mission. Temptations are oftentimes legitimate desires that want to be fulfilled and satisfied in illegitimate ways. Temptations twist the intent of the, mo- of the mission, shifting focus away from authority to focus on self to what we think is best for us, rather than humbly trust and obey the author of our mission. Clarity of mission and commitment to our mission are keys for overcoming the temptation to stray from our mission. Well, after his trial in the wilderness, Jesus returns to civilization and endures more trials at his hometown of Nazareth. It says on the Sabbath, he took up the scriptures in the synagogue to read what I believe was his mission statement from Isaiah 61, where he reads that the Lord has sent him to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And there in the congregation were various neighbors, friends, and relatives that had known Jesus from his youth, and some of them were impressed with his gracious words, but others were skeptical and thus entered conflict between them. Jesus confronts them for demanding proof from him. They wanted him to show signs, to heal their sick the way he had healed others in other towns. Jesus refuses to perform. He has nothing to prove to them. 
Jesus will go on to recount the stories of Elijah and Elisha as a form of rebuke to these people for falsely understanding God's mission. You recall that these two great prophets served during a season of great apostasy in Israel, and they reserved their greatest works of healing for Gentiles, testifying to God's mission to the whole world, not just the Jewish people. Well, these people of Nazareth had the opportunity to repent of their pride, their entitlement, and unbelief, but chose to be insulted and promptly escorted Jesus to a premature death at the cliff outside the town. Because the time had not come, Jesus merely passed through their midst and went on his way. He was not afraid to make enemies with those who oppose the will of God. He would not let his mission be detoured even to please his own kin. The rejection of our loved ones is painful, but not nearly as costly as a failure to fulfill one's own God-given mission. Jesus will move his ministry base to Capernaum, where he has a plethora of opportunities to teach and to heal. And it says here in the text that the people are astonished with him by the way he spoke with authority in his teaching, and that he could command the evil spirits to come out of those that they tormented. After healing Simon's mother-in-law, all kinds of people are brought to Jesus for him to heal. Luke records that Jesus laid his hands and healed every single one of them. But in their midst, the demons, as they were coming out, boasted in their insider knowledge of who Jesus was, trying to spoil the, the event, and Jesus rebuked them, silenced them, remaining the master of his mission to reveal his identity according to the will and timing of his Father. In verse 42, we have a shift in the text and in the activity of Jesus as he moves away from the crowds and the needs and the demands to a desolate place. And other gospel accounts record that he spent the whole night in prayer as he prepared to select his 12 closest disciples. And the text says that Jesus had tried to depart from the people, but people kept on coming, and they would have kept him from departing from them. And it's a reminder that ministry ministry needs never cease. There are endless opportunities to minister and serve. And Jesus could have stayed on healing and teaching and counseling, but for him to stay on mission, he had to move on in fulfillment of his Father's will. And he responds to the people vying for his attention by proclaiming at the end of our text that he had been called to preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns, for I was sent for this purpose. His mission would not be detoured by ministry need and demand. His mission would not be detoured by temptation. It would not be detoured by opposition. It would not be detoured until he reached its final destination and fulfillment at the cross of Calvary. You know, it perhaps would have been nice to settle down, just have 
a place in Capernaum where he could just teach and preach and counsel. But Jesus does not sell for anything less than God's mission to ultimately lay down his life to secure the salvation of all of God's people. And in preparation for his departure, Jesus will multiply himself. He will choose disciples. He will invest in their lives. He will prepare them for the trials that they will face. And Jesus had to endure opposition from the disciples. Even Peter, who became a stumbling block for resisting Jesus' words that he will go on to suffer, be handed over to the authorities and be crucified. In response to Peter, Jesus rebukes him and calls him Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. It was a lonely path. To stick to his mission was a hard and lonely journey. But what is remarkable to me is how Jesus, over those three years, preached to the crowds, taught his disciples, met with individuals along the way, extremely people-oriented, and yet not losing sight of the task, the mission focus of ultimately going to the cross. He met people's temporal needs, but let some of them go by to meet their eternal needs. You know, Jesus did not heal every disease. He did not preach to every soul. He stayed focused on his mission to provide eternal redemption for all of his people, to do the work that only he could do, and to leave behind plenty of work for his followers to do. In fact, when Dr. Rogers picks up with the Gospel of John next week and moves on to John 14, where it says that Jesus tells his disciples they will do even greater works than him. We assume in terms of numbers and impact and geography and spread across the globe. Jesus would return to the Father and send the Spirit in his place. And friends, nearly 2,000 years later, the mission lives on in and through us as well. And as you look over church history, you see that where the church has stuck to its mission, it has grown and prospered. Historians tell us that the church in the first couple of centuries grew at about 3 or 4% annual rate in gaining a large major share of the religious market in the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire to such an extent that Emperor Constantine was moved to give it favored status, to approve of the church. But sadly, this ushered in a whole shift and change in the nature of the church, bringing power, wealth, and prestige into the church and attracting many of the wrong kinds of clergy and people in the ministry. In fact, in the centuries that will follow, as you move into the Middle Ages, you find that the typical priest fathered numerous illegitimate children, hardly could recite the Apostles' Creed, led the Mass in a language that neither he nor most of his hearers could understand, and that is when he showed up. And thankfully, God responded with a great work in the Reformation era with the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation to help the church get back on mission, to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the history work I've done demonstrates that Europe, in many ways, was never truly Christianized. There were all kinds of gaps in its mission across that great land, 
and attendance in his great cathedrals has never been great. Visitors to America in the 1800s noticed how vibrant was religious worship in America compared to Europe. That's almost 200 years ago. It's also my understanding that not everyone who came over on the Mayflower was a devoted Puritan. Not all the early colonists were Christians. Many came for religious purposes, and many came to this country for economic gain. And while church attendance was pretty strong in the early colonial days, and even through the first half of the 1700s, and the Lord blessed this land with a first great awakening in the 1740s and afterwards, but trusted historians tell us that in 1776... Only about 17% of Americans belonged to a local church. That in New England, taverns had more people in them on Saturday nights than were people in worship Sunday morning. That between 1760 to 1800, more than a third of all first births took place less than nine months after the marriage began. From its earliest days, America has been a ripe mission field. And there's a great history of God working in the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and raising up zealous preachers and evangelists to do a remarkable work through the Methodists and the Baptists, through some Presbyterians, through other religious groups. And we know that from 1776 to 1850, that church membership grew that by mid-19th century, almost a third of Americans belonged to a church. By the turn of the last century, it passed 50%, and just a decade or so, it reached close to 70%. That is a remarkable work of God in bringing revival and renewal and faithfulness through the preaching and teaching of His Word. There's also a valuable lesson in church history, and that's the lesson of the Methodist a denomination that was zealous and passionate in its early days, but somewhere in the mid-19th century lost its way, began to drift, began to turn away from fundamental doctrine and the preaching of the cross to other concerns. And the Methodists are not alone. There are other examples from church history of those, even within Presbyterianism, that slipped into what we might call mission drift, I take that term from the writings of Peter Greer, author and CEO of Hope International, based here in Lancaster. As mission drift is when an organization that began with Christian conviction begins to compromise and abandon the vision, the vision of its founding forefathers. And in his book of the same name, written with co-author Chris Horst, they profile Harvard University the YMCA, the Pew Charitable Trust, and other institutions that once held to orthodox Christian belief and document the way they drifted and eroded into secular, unbiblical thinking and practice. It's the natural course. It's the way one goes when leaders are not intentionally countering our tendency to wander and not focused on staying mission true. Our church, your family, your Christian organization cannot go on autopilot. 
you have to be intentional and stay focused on the original biblical mission. Staying on mission requires a robust and uncompromising belief in the gospel. It means refusing financial incentives that might compromise your mission. It means retaining a crystal clear mission for why you exist. It means only electing board members and hiring staff that are 100% committed to your biblical core values. It requires organizational excellence and a commitment to always improving, instilling your core values into every member of your organization. Westminster Presbyterian Church has enjoyed steady and at times remarkable growth over its history dating back to 1968. God has blessed this church with excellence in preaching, in teaching, in music, in worship, and a strong commitment to missions, giving, and sending our people into cross-cultural missions. We are part of a denomination that, at least during the 1980s and 90s, was one of the fastest-growing denominations in our country. But there are no guarantees that that will continue. We must be intentional to stay on mission. Months ago, our leadership presented a strategic plan to this congregation, looking out ahead to the inevitable transitions in our leadership, to set some goals for ourselves ministry-wise and staffing, to help us stay the course, to be reminded of our original mission. You can see our mission statement in the bulletin, to glorify God, nurture disciples, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost. We must stay on mission with clear conviction, zeal, and thinking long-term beyond ourselves, our lives, even to our children and children's children. Their bright and vibrant witness for Christ remains here and to all the places that we're privileged to partner with and influence. But like Jesus in his mission, we will face temptation. One temptation is to think that we've done enough already and we can just hang back and not exert ourselves. Study after study shows that churches that grow are the ones that are hardcore, the ones that have dissonance with the culture, the ones that go against the mainstream. So I would say to you folks, we don't require less of you, we require more of you to give of yourself to a mission worthy of your time and your energy. You know that to, exer- to get any benefit out of exercise and weightlifting, you must be vigorous. If you hope to see growth and improvement, you must exert yourself, and the same is true for the church and any other organization. Like Jesus, we will face opposition. And we see this across the, the church landscape in our culture, as many churches and denominations have left behind biblical commitments, and even churches that call themselves evangelical are toying and flirting with abandonment of core principles. Things like the biblical teaching that hell is eternal. The biblical teaching that Adam is a historical person. The biblical teaching that that Jesus Christ, he actually believed that he would accomplish something on the cross. 
It wasn't just an example. It wasn't just this tragedy. He believed and knew and intended to go to the cross to die for a purpose. To satisfy the holy wrath of God by a perfect atoning sacrifice for sins. And to eliminate hell, to eliminate Adam, is to eliminate the cross. They all tie together. And you must stand firm to hold fast to these doctrines. Lest you drift into irrelevance, which is the testimony of history over and over and over and over again of churches that abandon their doctrine or just go by the way of the culture. And there's great social issues with marriage being redefined. The Supreme Court's going to do what they're going to do. The president's going to do what he's going to do. The media's going to say what they're going to say. We're going to define things God's way. We're going to stand firm by what Scripture teaches and not follow the whims in the shifting winds of our culture because we believe in the mission of Jesus Christ and we intend to stay on mission. And I believe that as we stick to that, as we are faithful, that God will give us more and more and more opportunities to fulfill the goals we want to fulfill, to retire our building mortgage, to move on to bigger and better things, to expand ministry, to do the things God calls us to do. You know, we can't do everything But everything that God calls us to do, we want to do well with excellence. And I, for one, believe that our best days are ahead of us, despite what's going on in the culture as it grows secular, atheistic. You know, there's a report that really only about 4% of Americans are atheists. And even many of them attend worship on a somewhat regular basis. I don't know how to figure that one out. I'm convinced people are searching People are hungry, and people are disillusioned with the false gospel, the false hope, and the false promises that are being offered sometimes in pulpits and at other media centers. And in fact, you say that 30% of our young people don't affiliate with any form of religion at all. And I believe many of that's because the liberalized teachings they grew up on have not met them where they are at In the last year, something like 200 young people from the U.S., Canada, and Europe have tried to join Islamist fighters in Syria, ISIS in Iraq. These are young people looking for a mission, looking for a purpose, and they will be sadly disillusioned on the Day of Judgment. Friends, we have a mission. We have a real purpose, a reason for existing, There is no greater mission in the world than joining and following, carrying out the work of Jesus Christ. So I challenge you today, have you embraced that mission? Perhaps you are suffering something akin to mission drift in your life right now. You've got off track. You have veered off course. The Bible says you need to repent. The Bible calls you back to trust in Christ for forgiveness, to embrace his plan and purpose for your life, that he wants to guide you and drive you in your mission and purpose that God has for you. We all drift. We all are tempted. We're distracted. Sometimes we need to say no to things, say no to good things so we can say yes to the best things. Many of us need to shift our priorities with our time and our money. We need to cut off the buzzing and the beeping around us so that we can focus. 
and be reminded of the mission to which we are called. Jesus stayed on mission. As he met temporal needs, as he focused on eternal needs, he stayed connected with his Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of my favorite words in the Scriptures are the two times the Father says to the Son, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You think Jesus was motivated in mission to hear those words from the Father? I give you those words as well. As you take up the mission of Jesus Christ in your life, and you look forward to the day when you hear the words from the Father, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, you have sent your Son on a mission that was fulfilled at Calvary long ago that is still being fulfilled as the outworking of that mission bears fruit in the saving of lost souls and the making of disciples. Thank you for calling us to this great, grand mission in which we faithfully testify to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Equip us and strengthen us as we continue on in our work. For the praise of your glorious grace, through the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.